So in late 2021, about a year ago, I got an email from Amazon, as I'm sure you do from time to time as well. Amazon knows that I love to buy books, knows that I love to read, and so they send me emails all the time, and knowing that I'll buy them. And um, on one particular day, I noticed an email with a book entitled Habits of the Household. And the title caught my attention because I've been a student of habits. I recognize the importance of how our habits really shape us. And as a father of four kids, who you hear me pick on all the time here from the pulpit, you know that I need all the help I can get when it comes to running a household. And so the title of the book, Habits of the Household, stood out to me, and I pre-ordered a copy, not really knowing anything more than that. But when it arrived in the mail, this was one of those rare books that when I began to read it, I couldn't put it down. In fact, I didn't want to put it down. I wanted to just keep reading it. And it's our privilege this morning to have its author, Justin Early, with us this morning. Uh, I hope you received out in the commons a free copy of his book, Habits of the Household. He also has another one called The Common Rule. I highly recommend it to you as well. Um, Both are excellent. And this particular book, Habits of the Household, in my opinion, is the best book of its kind. When it comes to books on parenting, household, marriage, things like that, This is one, in my opinion, that stands out above the rest. And let me give you three reasons why I think that's true. The first is because Habits of the Household is practical. Sometimes I've read books on marriage or parenting, and they're all theory and no practice. And so I'm left really wanting more. I'm wanting to know the so what. What do I do with this information? But Habits of the Household is based on tremendous theory, but each and every chapter gives real practical application steps as well. It's a very practical book. The second reason why I love this book so much and it ministered to me personally is that not only is it practical, but it's also realistic. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I read books on marriage and parenting and household, and I think, I I can't do this. I don't have the time to learn how to play the guitar and lead my family in a three-hour worship set every night. I just, I don't have that ability. It's, this is, this is unrealistic. But Habits of the Household is very realistic. Uh, Very realistic habits that we can introduce into our household in a way that centers on the gospel of Jesus. And that's the third reason why I love this book so much. And that is it's grace-filled and not legalistic. Sometimes, again, I read books on marriage, parenting, things like that, and I just feel like an utter failure when I read it. I feel that heavy burden of legalism, and yet this book is different. It's filled with the grace of God. It's filled with the reality of what it is to try to manage a household in our world and in our culture. Uh, Justin is married to Lauren. He has four boys. And so I know that uh, by definition, his life is one that is filled with grace, raising four young boys in his house. And so uh, without further delay, Grace Bible Church, would you please welcome Justin Early to our pulpit this morning. Good morning. Well, about 48-hour mark, of not sleeping, that I finally decided to go to the hospital. 
And I'm sitting in the emergency room about 3 a.m. on this morning, and the first question on my mind is not, what is this strange and sudden anxiety that's taken over and keeping me from sleep? The first question on my mind was actually, am I gonna make it to the law firm by 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, or are they gonna find out what's going on? It was about 5 a.m. when I finally gave up the ghost and wrote an email to my supervising partner and my secretary saying, I'm not gonna be in this morning, I have some personal issues, and I just left it at that. Pretty vague, because I didn't want them to know what was going on. But here's the truth. I actually didn't really know what was going on either. So I had, I had been overwhelmed by this sudden, strange, extreme anxiety, so much so that it was keeping me from sleep, but I had no real idea why. And a month after this evening, I would be a total wreck. I'd be up in the middle of the night often with wild fears, either re relying on a bottle of sleeping pills or a bottle of something else to fall back asleep. Now the other, so I'm introducing you here to the worst time in my life. It's about eight years ago. But the other thing that you should know about that time in my life is that I was then, as I still am now, a devoted follower of Jesus. And so I had to reckon with this terrible contradiction. How is it, how is it that so many of us who preach a gospel of peace are nonetheless wrecked by these lives of anxiety? Or how, and it might, maybe it's anxiety for you, maybe it's depression, maybe it's just the overwhelming burdens of life, maybe it's anything, but how is it that we live with this gap between our, our heads saying this and we really do believe it and we want to believe it, and yet our lives look like that. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that this gap between our head and our heart, between what we want to be true and the reality, this gap has a lot more to do with habit than you think. Your habits are actually forming your heart way more than you think. And that is a spiritual crisis. So, as I get into that, I want to introduce myself a little more so you can know who is this guy <laughs> that's telling us about his crises in life. All right, so here, here's, here's how I got there, okay? So I graduated from UVA in 2006, and I left to be a missionary in China. And I was a missionary there for almost five years until I had this calling experience on the streets of Shanghai where I felt the Lord saying, I want you to go back to America go to law school and live missionally within law and business. I realize that is a loaded statement, okay? <laughs> I get that's like a whole other talk on calling and really like how did you come to that conclusion? Did God speak to you? There's a lot there, it's for another sermon. But I, I want you to, to just hang with me for a second. Suffice it to say, I really did go to law school with all the fervor of a man on a call. And it went really well for me, mostly. I graduated around the top of my class I had my first two sons during law school, which is not great planning, by the way. I don't necessarily recommend it. It was a wild time, but I did well. Uh, I graduated, my wife and my two boys and I moved to Richmond, Virginia, where I started my dream job in mergers and acquisitions. So everything was going well, except for this sort of like background chaos that had been true the whole time in law school. And that was because I was really devoted you know, I felt the Lord calling me there, so I ran at it with all the fervor of a man on a call, and I was, you know, the rings and dings and beeps and alerts 
the calendars, the schedule, the resume, staying up later, waking up earlier. That was me, but that was also all my classmates. So I didn't think I was unusual. I thought that's exactly what you did to do well. And as a man on a call, I wanted to do well. So I look back at my life at that time, and I think the, the, you know, the house of my life was decorated with all this Christian content of calling, and it was really sincere. But the architecture of my habits were just like everybody else's. And it did not take long for those to come down, rather spectacularly, actually, because a couple months into my new job is when that night I told you about happened. So I wake up on one random Saturday night with what I know now to be a panic attack. Didn't have the words for that then. Just woke up in the middle of the night, my heart is racing, my palms are sweating. Like nothing was actually on my mind, just my body was going haywire. So I woke up my wife, as one does, said like, I feel really strange. And she's like, about? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Wise woman, she suggests we try to go back to sleep. I did. The problem was it happened again the next night and I, and I couldn't fall back asleep. So I ended up in the emergency room where in one of the all-time most anticlimactic moments of my life, a doctor tells me I'm simply struggling with symptoms of critical, clinical anxiety. And it's really common, as if that was comforting. It was not. He sent me home with a bottle of sleeping pills um, which technically, you know, put me to sleep, but also drove my life off an emotional cliff. So as it turns out, I react to sleeping pills in all the ways you read on the back of the bottles. <laughs> you laugh <laughs> till it happens to you. Um, I, and it really did. My life began to crater because not only did I have this serious anxiety and panic just sort of humming along in the background, but then I started to experience these weird hallucinogenic you know, nightmares, these enormous daytime mood swings. And then I actually got to a point where I was starting to have suicidal thoughts. And I had become almost unrecognizable emotionally and mentally from where I started. I remember a night that will forever be like the defining moment of the season of my life. My wife was standing in the kitchen, hands me a pile of dishes to put away in the cabinets, and I hand them back to her and say, I don't know where these go. I'm going upstairs, and I did. And you can, you can imagine, if I'm struggling with, can I do simple tasks around the house, I'm definitely worried about, can I keep my job? Can I pay back my student debt? But even more, you know, can I be the missionary to law and business that I felt so called to be? Can I be the father, the friend, the husband that I felt so called to be? Everything in my life had become threatened. And I entered this dark night of the soul where the pressing question was this, how did the missionary become converted? Because I was the missionary called to law and business and I became converted to the nervous medicating lawyer like that. How did this happen? I entered a long stretch of nights. I finally got rid of the sleeping pills, but I remained so handicapped by anxiety, but I needed a drink or two just to go to sleep at night. And, and this, this was my dark night of the soul. Now, the answer I'm gonna keep harping on throughout this morning is that how did I get converted? I got converted by habit. Here's, here's why I think that. This is a much better story. About a year later, it had been a really bad year. Really, I tried medication, tried counseling. None of it was really moving the needle. My wife and I um, had done some thinking and some reading, some talking, and we said, let's try something. Let's try putting some daily and weekly rhythms in place. 
mostly just to like rein in my chaos. Like give me some like bumper rails so that my bowling ball doesn't just go off and cause all this chaos that it was calling. And so I'm like, okay, we'll try it. So I'm trying to be a good boy and I have some daily and weekly rhythms that I'm gonna go to follow. And I sit down at a restaurant one night with two of my best friends. And a journal, much like this one that's sitting on the podium this morning, I laid it on the table and on it was scribbled this program of daily and weekly habits. And I asked my friends, Steve and Matt, who were sitting with me that night, to keep me accountable to this new program of habits. Again, just trying to be a good boy, because I didn't think any of this was gonna matter, y'all. Because I had no idea, no idea, how much the smallest and most ordinary patterns of our days and weeks actually shape our souls in the most extraordinary ways. My life from that time began to drastically change. And I standing, I am standing up in front of you this morning, now about eight years later, as somebody who still lives according to those silly daily and weekly habits, as someone who actually doesn't think they're silly anymore, I went on to write a book about them <laughs> called The Common Rule. But most importantly, I don't stand up in front of you as somebody who wrote a book. I stand up in front of you as somebody who slept like a baby last night in a random hotel in Dallas, which, you know, that's not a given to <laughs> have a good night's sleep in a hotel. Um, I stand up in front of you as a father of four boys who now runs his own law practice. Let me tell you, life is not less stressful than it was then, but I'm at peace. I don't struggle with those things anymore. Praise God, I don't take medications. I don't medicate myself to sleep anymore. I stand up as somebody who feels genuinely called to the father and the friend and the husband and the worker and the missionary that I am. I, the Lord has changed my life. Maybe most importantly, just to subnote here, I stand up in front of you as somebody who knows that in the dark night of your soul, the psalmist speaks truly. God is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. And whatever suffering you came here with this morning, whatever confusing period you're in, whether you re resonate with this story or know someone who does, God uses our crises to change us and make us more like him. And praise God, now the most important thing I have to share with the world is not legal advice on mergers and acquisitions. I mean, I could, I could help you with that. But I think the most important thing I have to share with the world is this, is that your habits are shaping you spiritually far more than your hopes are. And you need to attend to that because it's a crisis of discipleship. I think the American church looks the way it looks because we ignore the spirituality of habit. All right, so the reason I say so confidently that your habits form you, they shape you, is because there's great neurological and theological evidence for it. So after this time when these rhythms started to change my life. And by the way, I'm going to tell you what some of them are in a minute. I'm going to get practical. But as they started to change me, I just started to read and think and learn about this. And two of the things I learned, neurologically speaking, your habit activity happens in the deepest, like lower part of your brain. We call it the basal ganglia. And neurologists talk about this lower order and top order thinking. And it's actually really wonderful. It's God's neurological gift to us because this is how we can do things like flip pancakes and talk to kids or tie their shoes while we're telling them about the day's schedule. Or you can drive home and make all the right turns on your way back to the house while you're thinking about something much more important or talking to your spouse. And this is wonderful because of the beauty and the power of habit. It's great until it's a bad habit. Then this structure of your brain hamstrings you, okay? Because when it's a bad habit, like an evening pattern of addiction, like I was struggling with, 
or when it's a daytime pattern of needlessly anxious thought about the same things over and over that you are not gonna change no matter how much you think about them. Why do you keep going in these patterns? You know, when it's a morning routine of, let's say, where's my prop? Mindless submission to an operating system that's designed to attract your attention and sell it to advertisers. When it's that kind of routine, when it's these kind of addictions, yes, of course your brain knows better. Like, of course you don't wanna live the way you do. But that's how we become people of the gap. Our head is going this way and our habits are going that way and we feel the tension. And here's where the, the theological point, here's the second thing, right? When your head goes this way and your habits go that way, guess which way your heart follows? Your heart follows the habit. This, this is why habits need to be thought of as liturgies. You should think of your daily ordinary routines as liturgies of worship to something or someone. Question is just what, right? Think, when I say liturgy, here's what I mean. Simple definition. Just a pattern of worship that we repeat over and over. Sometimes semi-consciously or unconsciously. You did it this morning, right? There's certain things we do in the service and we do them over and over. And it's actually good because our great hope is that we're formed in the image of the God that we worship. So here's the thing. Habits and liturgies, almost the same definition. Little things we do over and over that shape us. The difference is this, ready? Liturgies admit they're about worship. Habits might obscure what we worship, but that doesn't mean we're not worshiping. And worship changes us, right? This is why the psalmist says those who make and trust in idols will become like them. What we worship changes who we are. We become formed in the image of what we worship, and sometimes that's completely deforming us. All right, so here's that, that's the neurology and the theology. Here's what it looks like in practice, right? Here was, here's my morning routine pre-anxiety crash, okay? I'm gonna give you a couple habits. Habit number one, I wake up, open my eyes, flip open my phone, and start checking my work emails. All right, simple habit. What's the liturgy going on under the radar? Well, it's not that the most important thing about today is maybe getting some quiet time or prayer meditation in. No, it's the liturgy is the most important thing about today is whether I can get what so-and-so needs done at the office. As if I'm not worth anything if I can't make them happy. And this liturgy of identity sneaks in. Of course, you didn't mean to think like that. You never wanted to make work an idol, but habit changes you. Habit number two, Everybody in my family scrambles to get somewhere late. We're all eating on the go. And then I get to my office and I eat at the desk because we don't have any time to sit down and actually have, you know, have a meal. So normal American life, incidentally. What's the liturgy of worship going on underneath this busy family schedule? Well, for me, it was this idea that to be that busy is not just normal, but it might even be desirable because that means people want my time and I want to be wanted. I kind of need to be needed. And so I, I stop saying no to anything and I say yes to everything because it feels good and it just leads to this churn. And underneath it is this worship of like me. So uh, here, habit number three, um, I, I get to my desk in the morning and I set my phone here, my laptop here, my monitor here, and all my alerts and notifications are on. <laughs> volume up. And it, it might be a text message, it might be a client email, it might be a partner calling me on the phone, it might be a meme that was sent, it might be a Gmail, it doesn't matter. It gets my attention. 
because recent things are important things, you know, urgent things are essential things, which is not true at all. And by the way, it's like pro tip, awful way to work. You will get nothing done and you will feel horrible. But underneath this radar, there's a liturgy going on that I'm like a brain surgeon on call. Like I need to attend to everything. The world depends on me and I need to answer it. So I'm gonna stop there. Three habits and it's already exhausting, right? It's not even 10 a.m. But by not having any counterformational program of habits, I am just swimming along in the American current, drifting rather, and I'm being rigorously formed in the worship of omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, as if I am God and I can do it all. So now I look at my life then, I look at the typical American life now, I'm like, no wonder we're falling apart. It, no wonder we have a mental health crisis. No wonder depression and anxiety are endemic because underneath our typical schedule is the, are these liturgies of habits that are worshiping us and they're making us God. This is the fundamental sin of Eden, right? Trying to be God instead of worship God. And this, as I said, is a spiritual crisis happening in the most invisible parts of our lives are habits because the, the things that you almost never notice. What I wanna offer you this morning is, is three practical ways to start to take your habits and say, if they're going to worship something, what if they worship God? If, if our habits are going to shape our life in some direction, what if they actually shaped us in the love of God and neighbor? Here are three ways to think about that. I'm gonna give you one personal one, one parenting one, and one communal one. But as a parent of four young boys right now, um, I kind of lean, I think a lot about how we're forming our children. So I'm gonna kind of move all of them in the direction of family a little bit. Because uh, think about it like this. If I made the case, and I hope I made it well, that we become our habits. Well, here's the second part. Our kids become us, right? We become our habits, our kids become us. So our habits, even our personal ones, and even our communal ones, our habits are probably the most important part of our children's spiritual formation. So we better choose them carefully, right? This is teaching them so much about who we are, who God is. So let's think about this. First, personal habit. I'm gonna offer you a habit that I call scripture before phone, okay? Scripture before phone. Here's how I got, here's how I got onto this one. My first year of being an M&A attorney, I, and, and that's our like fancy way of saying mergers and acquisitions, which is our fancy way of saying buying and selling companies. So I'm sorry, sorry for the jargon. My first year of being a lawyer, <laughs> um, I'm working with our London office, which is about five or six hours ahead of Richmond, Virginia, where I live. And so I wake up every morning to five or six hours worth of work from London being sent to my inbox. And again, I wanna be a good lawyer, trying to do well at my new job. So it becomes normal just to wake up, roll over, and start to answer emails from the bed. And I never thought this was a problem until one morning, one of my boys, there's too many, I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> he wakes up a little bit early, it's probably 5 a.m. And so I get up, he's crying, I get up to go help him. And five minutes later, I'm sitting on the foot of my bed, halfway through an email to the London office, when I realize my son is still crying. Like I never went to help. I just did the habit thing and I started answering an email. So I throw my phone across the room. Luckily it hits the pillow. I didn't want to break it. I'm not ready for that yet. Uh, I throw my phone. I go to help him. He's fine. 
wait for it, he had lost his pacifier. <laughs> so I give it back to him, and I go back to my room, and, and I think, okay, he was fine. I'm not fine. Because this, this is the morning I realized that I had become the guy who's more attentive to the cries of his office and the cries of his son. And I never set out to be like that. Incidentally, I work with a lot of crazy lawyers. None of them set out to be like that. None of y'all set out to be like that. But most of us become like that because of habit. Most of us become like that because our heads are asking our phones a super simple question. It's innocuous. So what do we need to do today? What's going on today? Who's posting what today? I mean, it's simple stuff. Your heart under the radar is asking your phone an entirely different question. It's who do I need to become today in order to be lovable? And the reason your heart asks that is because you were made for the love of the God of the universe. So you've got a hole in your heart, just like the rest of us. It's gaping. It's huge. We wake up hungry to know, are we loved today? And what do we need to do to earn it? The great news of the gospel that we sang about this morning is that God loves you right where you are. This is the good news, that God knows you and he loves you. You are loved. What if we woke up to that? What, what if our habit was to indulge ourselves again in the love of Jesus for us so that then we can go to the world not looking for love, but ready to give love? And that is a theological category, right? But it happens in practice in habit. Where we find our love and the love that shape our hearts, it happens in habits. And I can't harp enough on the way it happens in technological habits. The iPhone came out, I think, 2008, right? If you're good at math, and I'm not, that's about 14 years, okay? We are all adolescents when it comes to this kind of technology. We are all fumbling around, and like how wise are your adolescents, right? Hmm? How good at life are they? Sorry to those you know, younger kids in the room. But the reality is like, you're not good at life yet. We're not good at life with the smartphone yet. We're not good with screams yet. But probably the most important factor in your discipleship to Jesus right now is the way you use your screens. Probably the most important factor in the formation of your children right now is the way screens are used in your house. So I wanna call us to attention as I was that morning and say, they are changing your heart. Discipline your use of screens or they will disciple you. I was gonna say it one more time. If you don't discipline your use of screens and fight the good fight to discipline your child's use of screens, then screens will disciple us. The stakes are pretty high. And one of the most beautiful ways I've found to do that is scripture before phone. It's, it's just a simple way of saying, before I open my screen in the morning, and you can do this because there's these antique things called alarm clocks, which... <laughs> And there's also this great setting on your phone. I actually do use my phone as an alarm, but it's do not disturb. So when I turn it off in the morning, I'm not seeing any notifications. I'm not seeing the work emails. They can wait. It's, it's just a regular morning with my kids and I spend, I'm still a corporate lawyer with a fairly demanding schedule, but I just spend a little time. Right now it's on the way to the work. I listen to the audio Bible. Just spend a little time indulging myself in the reminder that I don't need to look for love today because God loves me. I can go to work and give love. I don't need to prove anything to anyone, not a partner, not a client. I don't need to prove anything to social media. I don't need to look like those pictures. God loves me the way I am. I don't need to worry about what cable news or Twitter says about how the world's falling apart because I know God's putting it together. I know that story is more true. Your habits of screens will shape who you are and your kids are watching. 
So let's talk about that for a second, okay? Number two, I'm gonna talk about some habits of parenting. Uh, around 2017, 18, I, I finish a book on this idea. It's called The Common Rule. I'm the guy who writes about technology habits and work rhythms and scheduling things. And then I have three boys at this time. I have four now. I had a night, another epiphany. All, all, my, all my writing comes from me falling apart. <laughs> like, all my writing comes from, from chaos and crisis. Here's, here was the second crisis. I'm putting my boys to bed one night. In bedtime with three boys at that age is exactly what you would picture. It's a lot of fighting. It's a lot of yelling. It's a lot of bathwater on the floor. It's a lot of confusion about whose toothbrush is whose. And I still can't remember. Like, no hope of who Spider-Man is and who's the T-Rex one is. Like, I don't know. Just use one to brush your teeth. Like, let's go. So, like, and then... Their thing is, and this is weird, let's move on. Their thing is like, escape the bath and start naked wrestling matches in the room. And I'm like, this is, just seems inappropriate. So like, trying to break those up and a board book's getting involved. It's like a, you know, WWE, like wrestling implement. And it's just a lot. And so, and I know that it's, it's a lot for you guys too, right? So I just do this, I flip the switch at some point on this particular evening. And I start doing the thing that I call the impotent general, where I just yell and command them around, but it doesn't really have any impact on, on what's happening. Like, all these threats to get your PJs on, or there will be ruthless violence, you know. And, and so I finally manage them in bed, and I, you know, say a quick prayer, say, God loves you, and I do too. Come out and shut the door. Right? And then it's like, <laughs> the irony <laughs> sets in. And I have what I call now one of my hallway epiphanies, where, like, my hand is still on the doorknob, and I'm like, this is normal. This is normal life for us and for me and them. That I yell them off to bedtime, tell them that I love them, and they're probably sitting there with their little child brains like, what does love mean? <laughs> you know, and, and, so, and this, like, it, this was tough for me at the time because it was one of those moments, and I hope you have them, I hope you're having one this morning, where you just step back a little bit and look at your normal life and realize it needs to change. And the good news is you should feel no shame in that. What you should feel is grace in that. I actually noticed one of the songs that we sung this morning. I wrote down the line. It said, the only thing that makes me want to change is your grace. Grace, the grace of Jesus, is this wonderful news that you are found where you are, but he's not going to leave you where you are. Grace is, grace is the message of Jesus that says, yes, you're sinful. Yes, you deserve judgment, but I love you anyway. And you're not stuck where you are. So let grace not just, ex be, let it expose where you are. It's fine. You've got awful habits just like I do. But let's call each other forward. So what I did during that time was I went to talk to my pastor named Derek. And he suggested that I try this bedtime liturgy with my boys um, which is ironic, right? Because I'm the guy who just wrote a book on liturgies of technology and stuff. And I'm like, maybe I should apply this to my parenting, huh? So I go try it. And I write my first bedtime liturgy. And I'm going to do it with you. Okay, you ready? And that's not weird at all, even though I'm going to do a parent to, to kid thing. Ready? Here's the liturgy I do with my sons many nights a week. Uh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And hint, hint, all the answers are going to be yes. Until the end, when the Sunday school answer will be obvious. Okay, you ready? So I do this with my boys many nights when I put them to bed. Before I turn the lights off, I say, can you see my eyes? Can you see that I see your eyes? Do you know that I love you? Again, not weird at all. We're just talking. 
Do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? Do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? Who else loves you like that? Rest in that love. So this sentimental exchange, you can imagine how well it goes with a three-year-old boy (laughs) the first time. (laughs) The eye thing was taken as an invitation to poke my eye. (laughs) The answers were not right. Um, So I was like, you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? No. (laughs) I don't think you do. And I'm like, stop there, stop there, you know. Um, So it's messy, but I know enough about habit and parenting then to at least know that nothing is normal until it is. So a good parent perseveres. And right, and you know this about family. Families can make the weirdest things normal, y'all. <laughs> That's what it means to be family. And, but that can be holy too. You can make beautiful patterns of liturgy and worship normal in your household. So I, I, I persevered and we hit this beautiful evening about two weeks later where otherwise important, to be honest, everything was the same. Still bathwater on the floor, still naked wrestling matches, Still much confusing over toothbrushes. And I'm still pretty amped up in my volume. But one of my sons asked, can we have our bedtime blessing now? And we had this beautiful exchange about the unconditional love of God, despite their behavior, which was not good. Despite my behavior, which was not good. And, we, and that was the end of the night. And I remember shutting the door that night and thinking, okay, circumstances are all the same what was different about tonight was me. Because I was no longer driving towards this moment of just getting them to bed. I was driving towards what I might call a gospel liturgy, a little habit that just pushed us gently into the arms of Jesus and reminded us that the dominant fact of this house is not how well we are behaved. It's not how much we got done. It's not the schedule. It's not the achievements. It's that God loves us no matter all that. And that is what I want to suggest to you in terms of parenting habits. That's a way to build a household, okay? Because you can apply this, and if we had a longer seminar, you know, I'd go through the list. But just quickly, you can apply this to so many places. You can look at your mealtimes and ask, is the table the center of gravity, relationships? Is that the center of gravity of this family? Or are sports schedules, work schedules, achievements, resumes, is that the center of gravity? It's an interesting question. And it happens in habit. You can look at your moments of discipline with your children. Because this is really where habits and instincts come through, right? When you get smacked in the face by a toddler, or when you get the milk spilled for the 14th time at the same dinner, when the grocery store aisle four tantrum happens, like, you weren't planning on this. (laughs) You're reacting out of instinct and habit. What would it look like to start to practice new discipline habits? Of incorporating, like, one of the big ones for me right now is a pause prayer. Like right before going to a moment of discipline, saying a short prayer, and and when I say short prayer, I'm like, help, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Lord have mercy. But, But something that just actually for a moment takes my attention up and reminds me that I'm also a rather misbehaved child and I depend on the grace and truth of a savior, a truthful savior who will call me forward, but a gracious one that will come to me gently. And and even that help, you know, helps me be a little bit more like him and remind me that I'm more like my kid than not. Uh, I mean, you can think about this in patterns of screen time in your home, like we just talked about. You can think about this in your marriage. There's 
I would love for you to take a look at the book that was given you and flip to a chapter that interests you and ask the question, if our household is gonna be tilted in the direction of habits, and it will be, how could we do it in such a way that we're always tumbling into the arms of the Savior who loves us? I wanna close with one more, um, one last one here, short one. It's again looking at you, but your kids are watching, looking at you, and I wanna encourage you to develop habits of friendship. And, and you might think like, okay, we're closing on this one, really? No, it's, I'm serious, because friendship will make or break your life. You were made in the Trinitarian image of God such that you cannot do any of this alone. Like any of this habit stuff, any of this work stuff, any of this church stuff, you cannot do life alone because you were meant to do it alongside other people. This is theologically strange, but true. If you look at Genesis, God actually looks at Adam in the garden and says, it's not good for you to be alone. Just, let's just recount that scene one more time. God is with Adam. <laughs> God's there. And he's like, not good for you to be alone. Because apparently God made us so that we're not fully who we are meant to be until we're who we are with others. Which means, interestingly, you can't become like Christ until you're becoming like him alongside other people. You really can't change your habits until you're changing it alongside other people. You remember the story of Matt and Steve, my two friends? They may have saved my life because they were there with me in my moment of crisis, saying, let's work on this together. Interesting fact about America right now, our life expectancy has been going down for now, I think, six years. This was pre-pandemic. Our, our life expectancy started to trend downward for the first time since the 1950s. Then it was an influenza outbreak. About 2017, we noticed it was going down because of nasty stuff, suicides, opioid overdoses, drug and alcohol-related deaths. Sociologists have begun to argue that these things are all happening because of something more important, an epidemic of loneliness, that we're coping with our loneliness in ways that actually kill us. So when I say friendship will make or break your life, like I'm being literally serious. It will kill you, actually, but it will also spiritually kill you, right? The good news of the gospel, I'll say it one more time, is that Jesus knows you fully and loves you anyway. That is why we come here and we do what we do. That is why we think about our habits. Jesus knows you fully and loves you anyway. What is a friend besides someone who knows you fully and decides to stick around anyway, for whatever reason? It's a beautiful thing we do when we do friendship. When we actually, vulnerable friendship, you know, where we disclose ourselves and someone says, I'm with you anyway. I'm sticking around anyway. And so I know this is common sense, right? But I'm talking about making a common practice by taking one of your 168 hours a week and devoting it towards that kind of vulnerable friendship. That's the habit I would challenge you with. Spend an hour of each week looking for that kind of vulnerability. This might be small group. This might be an accountability group. This might be a breakfast crew that you eat with. This, this might be sitting on the back porch with a couple friends and just talking. But do this crazy thing. I do it with my friends, Matt and Steve. Every week, we get together and we tell our secrets. We just are honest about our lives. And I love the fact, I mean, I don't know y'all. Y'all seem great. I'm not gonna tell you all my secrets. Not now. But Matt and Steve know them. And so I can stand up in front of you as a man without secrets, and I cannot tell you how strong that makes me feel. It makes me feel strong because I know the love of Jesus through the love of them. 
They know me fully and love me anyway. And I'm like, oh, that's what it's like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that the word of Christ is stronger in the, in the, the word of Christ is stronger in the mouth of your brother. And it's true. Like, we need friends walking closely with us if we're gonna follow Jesus like that. So let me close on that idea. Think about your personal rhythms. Think about your family rhythms. Think about your communal rhythms because they're rhythms of worship in your life and they're gonna change you. But know this, habits do not, will not, cannot change God's love for you. That is settled fact. His, his grace is there for you. He loves you. The whole thing we're talking about is that God's love for you should change your habits. So be invited to examine your habits in grace. Confess them to each other. Call each other forward, knowing that grace is paving the way. God loves you and he wants to see your habits change. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for these people this morning. Thank you that we can be here and talk for a couple minutes. I pray that you would use this Use this moment in our life to let us think about the way that you love us no matter where we are, but the way that you're calling us forward. And I pray that we would heed you. I pray that we would hear you. I pray that we would walk with you into new heads, new hearts, and new habits. In your name we ask this, amen. Thank you all.